and look at social media. In social media, which is really a playground of self-aggrandizement and attention-seeking, who's going to win in that space? A person who has more narcissistic qualities because they're willing to invest themselves into look at me, look at me, no, look at me, 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 me. And so that kind of focus, which is now really a major driver in our economy, has incentivized these patterns. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. This episode features a conversation about narcissism with Dr. Ramani Durvasala, a clinical psychologist and best-selling author. In preparation for our conversation, I read her most recent book, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. Dealing with toxic people can be a difficult topic, but let's go there because we likely all come into contact with toxic people. And narcissists can be among the more challenging to navigate. My goal is for you to come away from this episode with some tools for coping. Dr. Ramani argues that social media can be a breeding ground for narcissism. We also discuss narcissism in the workplace. And part of why these relationships can be so difficult is because narcissists seldom recognize their own bad behavior, nor are they willing to label themselves as narcissists. Even mental health professionals can be reluctant to apply the label of narcissist, and we unpack that too. Part of what makes Dr. Ramani's book and her message so compelling and so important is that she cares deeply about the huge loss of potential that typically results from people not stepping away from toxic relationships that are destroying their health. Systems and cultures that reward bad behavior with impunity are part of the problem too. So what to do about it? Throughout our conversation, we strive for compassion. She reminds us that meaningful connections are more important than ever and that self-preservation may be one of the best tools to fight narcissism. Understanding some of the reasons that narcissists behave as they do may help you more skillfully and compassionately engage or disengage. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ramani. Hi, Dr. Ramani. Nice to meet you. Hi, how are you, Derek? It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm grateful to be with you and I'm looking forward to talking about narcissism. Oh, I can't. I mean, I, 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 all the time. It's what I, the only, I always feel like it's the only thing I'm able to talk about. I can talk about other things too, but this is what I do. And I'm really, really happy to talk with you about it. Nice. Well, maybe we'll do a future episode together where we can talk about yes, something else. Something else. Maybe therapy or, I don't know, right. Jungian yeah, analysis. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot of yeah, Dr. James Hollis lately. There's, there's so much in mental health that can be talked about, especially at this time in history where so many people are grappling with it. I guess for me, what I really do believe is that so much of what people are struggling with, though, on any given day are the, are the toxic interactions that they experience. Those toxic interactions are actually the things that can turn a day upside down. And often that the core of that is narcissism. Okay. So let's start with me trying to track your book a little bit. Mm-hmm. Your book mm-hmm. is so packed with information. It's basically a guide to how to navigate someone who is toxic, who uh, may be narcissistic or is uh, working through full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. There's just so much in there. And I recommend for anyone who is experiencing that to check out your book and also check out your YouTube channel where congratulations, you have well over 
half a million subscribers. It's pretty cool. Uh, also an indictment on where we're at today in the world, which is not so cool. It's pretty sad. Mm -hmm. And your book, your newest book, it's titled, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane mm -hmm. in the Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say a few words um, about what strikes me uh, about your book. And then also a few words in terms of how we can maybe frame this conversation. You know, your book definitely helps provide insight into why the world is feeling like a meaner place, more uncivil, okay. more unempathetic. Also on why many people are feeling more isolated. And for anyone feeling that way, you assure the reader that we're not going crazy. This is a real phenomenon. And I first want to say, while prepping for this conversation, I have had and I have an uncomfortable feeling that a conversation like this of this nature could come across as an, as an us versus them, as us versus all the narcissists and toxic people out there. And you know, based on what I read in your book, there does seem to be a clear demarcation between someone with narcissistic personality disorder and the rest of us humans who live either on the spectrum or, you know, on the spectrum of, of its patterns uh, and exhibit from time to time these behaviors. Uh, specifically, you just list 30 behaviors under the five clusters of, of narcissism. Uh, so I hope that while we do unpack this, that we can somehow also zoom out to uh, more of a we, a collectively, most humans, including myself, have ongoing inner and interpersonal work to do with moment to moment room for an opportunity for learning and growth. And I certainly have my moments that are less than elegant, as you elegantly put it in your book. And so I'm really curious if our conversation can also help serve as a mirror to ourselves to our listeners so that we don't walk away from this conversation feeling better or superior and and as i mentioned uh, earlier before we started recording i, I felt really sad uh, but also more empowered while reading your book and because there's just so much suffering and despair in the world due to this problem and you provide a lot of help navigating that and i guess just lastly before we get into your background uh you say roughly halfway through the book that at some level, all of us are vulnerable to the societal pressures of narcissism. And that's quite shocking and an urgent message. And, you know, I also heard you say in another interview that you tell your students, if you understand narcissism, you understand mental health. So I guess it's an understatement to say this is a big deal. And let's just see how much of this we can unpack together in the, sh in the short time that we have. So your background and why narcissism? So I am a, so my background is I, um, I am a psychologist by training. So I'm a trained as a clinical psychologist. I have a practice in Los, here in Los Angeles. I, I, in, in which I see clients for therapy, clients for consultation. I am a professor. I'm a professor at California State University, Los Angeles, where I have been for over 20, 21 years, and where I've done research on personality disorders, including narcissism. And I also am the founder and CEO of a company that does training and education on narcissism, working on it with, with people who have companies, with therapists, to sort of teach people how to take these this knowledge and inform 
healthier workplaces, how to work with clients. And, and that company is called Luna Education Training and Consulting. So, so these are sort of the three professional paths. And, and I'm also an author, speaker, all of that. So the way I came into this space was actually in doing research. And as all research ideas come from, they come from trying to fix a problem. And what was being brought to my attention more and more about staff, because we had sort of lab locations around the city, was in one of more of these clinical settings, somebody was commenting on some of the patients are so mean to the, to the staff, like to the receptionist, to the nurses, all of that. And it, it kept coming up again. They're saying, I, I can't stand this job. Some people were even quitting because of how mean the patients were. And that led me to take a deep dive because it was usually the same people who were mean. And they, in fact, seemed to be sucking in many, many more of the resources of these clinics than many of the other clients. Even when the other patients were more physically ill, these difficult patients were sucking more resources. Hmm. And when I stopped to reflect on the toll these difficult patients were taking on frontline staff, on physicians, on nurses, and even on my own research staff, it really took me into the world saying, this has got to be personality issues, right? This didn't conform to what we traditionally think of mental illness, depression, and anxiety. And that led to a series of about 10 years of doing uh, research funded by the National Institutes of Health on personality disorders and how that affects a whole range of issues related to health. And I was specifically looking at HIV because that's always been the health population I've focused on. But at the same time, more and more patients were coming into my practice and they kept telling me the same story of a marriage, invalidation, manipulation, denial of their reality, diminishment, slow dehumanization, same story over and over again. And again, I was already doing the research on personality. I'm like, there's something happening here. And sometimes the clients would be so overwhelmed at the end of the session. They're like, could you just send me a brief email to review this? I already had to do clinical notes. And so I would throw that in an email. The emails not only were converging, but I'm like, mm, instead of sending these emails, I should just write a book. But what was fascinating is as I was doing some of this work on personality and personality disorders and all of this, nobody really cared. In fact, my own mentor from graduate school said, you know, if you do research on personality disorders, Romani, it's going to be career suicide. I'm like, ah, my career isn't that good anyhow. So I'm doing it because I think there's some real human suffering here. Then 2016 happened. And in 2016, it doesn't matter what your politics were. This word really percolated up into the everyone's lexicon. So I almost felt like I was the, the sort of the hunched over scientist working in her lab in an obscure corner of Cal State LA and nobody cared about what I was doing. We professors don't care that nobody cares. And then this word became a thing. Then the phone started ringing off the hook. And then I started doing more and more speaking. Like at that point, I'd actually given up on the media, Derek. That's what's so interesting. I'm like, nobody cares about this. I'm studying like some obscure butterfly from the Amazon. Nobody cares. Well, apparently everybody cared. And it was in all of it happened at once. And so when the political spectrum changed and people saw behavior from somebody that they could not decode, and it was happening a hundred times a day on the news, all of a sudden I said, you see what happens when this goes unchecked? This is what happens. And so, and that then was the floodgates. And, and from that, all this other sort of bringing this into the public realm, because I thought, here's a real struggle. The world of mental health does not want to talk about this. There are no required courses on narcissism. I went through five, six years at it phenomenal graduate program. We never talked about narcissism. It never came up in my clinical training. I wasn't taught this and people still aren't taught this and people don't like to talk about it. It is a dirty word in mental health. And the problem is if we don't educate the public, they are getting gobbled up by this. And I'm saying, if you can understand this at a minimum, you can stop blaming yourself. And that's why I do what I do. And why is there a reluctance to talk about it? Does it have something to do with the fact that you feel 
we should no longer talk about it as a disorder. So let, let's clear up some terminology. You used a term early on when you were speaking here, narcissistic personality disorder. So when we talk about a personality disorder, we're talking about something very diagnostically specific. And I'll be frank with you. That's why I just say I'm talking about narcissism. I can't know if somebody has a personality disorder unless I spend a pretty substantial amount of time with them in a clinical setting. Personality disorders, by definition, are very pervasive. They're very stable. They cut across a variety of situations in a person's life, and they result in social impairment, occupational impairment, and subjective distress. The issue is that for a lot of people out there who are narcissistic, they're never going to roll into a therapist's office. They don't think there's anything wrong with them. They're blaming everyone else. This is my wife's fault. She's difficult. This is my boss's fault. They're difficult. This is someone else's fault. They're difficult. Everyone's out to get me. That's why things don't go my way. So there's no sense of self-reflection here. So they're not ending up in our offices. We don't even get to see it that much. In fact, the epidemiology Statistics estimate that maybe the rate of narcissistic personality disorder in the population is somewhere between 3 and 6%, but that's a rough estimate because no one's ever done good research on this. But when we talk about narcissism, we're talking about a descriptive style. It's almost like calling someone agreeable or stubborn. It carries no more weight than that. The challenge is, is that when some, that narcissism is viewed to be a bad word, like if you say someone's narcissistic, by implication, we're saying that they're selfish and self-serving, things that aren't good, and so nobody likes to use it, and mental health practitioners are not supposed to use words that aren't nice. But the challenge becomes, and here's where it gets really interesting, when a person comes into a therapist's office we focus on the person's suffering, right? What are you going through? Tell me what's happening. They're depressed, they're anxious, whatever they're struggling with, we focus on that. We don't tend to talk about the people who aren't in the room. They'll say they're having a relationship problem. And then we focus on the client or the patient who's having the relationship problem and their symptoms. But if we widen up the lens a little bit and recognize that the patterns that are happening in the relationship the constant manipulation, the constant dismissiveness, that there is no communication skill I can give someone for that. I've got to teach them that this pattern not only isn't good for them, it's not going to change. So they need to make their decisions accordingly. And that's a conversation that the world of mental health has been reluctant to get into. Narcissism is a dirty word in mental health. It feels labely. It feels unhealthy. It's like calling someone a name. I don't think it is. We have no problem calling people agreeable. But yet, give you an interesting issue, Derek, narcissistic people make much more money than agreeable people. And yet being called narcissistic is a dirty word in mental health. So do you see what I'm saying and how inconsistent this is? And so what happened, I think everybody found the conversation so perilous that nobody wanted to have it. Yeah. I want to come back to how it's a recipe for success at a societal mm -hmm. level and then mm -hmm. in the workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like also for someone with full-blown NPD, they're likely not staying in therapy, even if they do come to see you. So people who are who are very narcissistic or who may be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder are over 60% more likely to drop out of psychotherapy prematurely. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you do use the word narcissism or you address the behaviors that can be associated with narcissistic personality disorder on a pretty routine level with your clients. 
So I work with two groups of clients. The by far the vast majority are people who are experiencing the harm and psychological distress of having a human relationship with somebody who is narcissistic. But I would say 10, 20% of my practice are people who are narcissistic. And so I've seen, I see both sides of the street and it's, it's harrowing. I have to say it's harrowing. I mean, it is not, it's why most therapists won't see these clients. They will say, no, can't work with you. They'll fire the client. They'll give them a referral. It's very contentious. You get used to being called names. You get used to harassment. I mean, that's just, it's the nature of the work. And if they're doing this to me as a therapist, you can bet your bottom dollar they're doing it to everyone around them. Hmm. I'm trying to take this now into the realm of the everyday. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, mm -hmm. I don't know. It, would, would it, is it more impactful to cover how one should navigate someone with full-blown NPD or is it more of a public service for us to talk about how one might navigate their own exhibition of or experience of certain types of behaviors that are narcissistic in general but aren't necessarily full-blown narcissistic personality disorder I think the more useful one is the first one is how to navigate this okay. because the people who have these traits don't tend to be that self-reflective about them. And so it kind of shoop, goes right over their head. They don't even think we're talking to them. Let's take this word narcissism and let's view it as a bucket. Okay. So a bucket makes it easier for me to carry 15 little random things to the other side of the room instead of walking back and forth across the room 15 times, right? And that bucket, in my case, carries 30, 30 descriptions of behavioral, cognitive, interpersonal patterns a person can have. Lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, superficiality, constant seeking of validation and admiration, jealousy, the need to control other people, sensitivity to criticism, being oppositional, all of these things are a part of narcissism, okay? Does every person who's narcissistic look the same? No, there's like six or seven subtypes, and those all look different too. But the bucket is called narcissism. So if a person finds that bucket, that term dismissive, I'll say, great. Say, I've got a partner, and my partner lacks empathy and is really entitled and is quite manipulative and is very grandiose and is very arrogant and is super controlled. If you want to do that whole long series of words, that's fine. The same way if I invited you, my you to my house and said, would you like some flour, sugar, eggs, baking soda, um, uh, sugar, would you like that? Great, because I, you know, I prefer to call it a cake. But if it makes you better, feel you better for me to break it down by the ingredients so it feels more understandable, I'm happy to do that. And so I think that for people who are going through these relationships, they bring up some universals. They will say, I am constantly doubting myself. Blame is constantly being placed on me. I feel, I never feel like I'm, en I'm enough. I always feel like we're on the precipice of ending this relationship. It's very volatile. It's very contentious. That's not to say 100% of relationships that are characterized by those patterns are with somebody who's narcissistic, but I think we can bet the farm on the fact that somebody in that relationship is highly antagonistic, highly volatile, and fits into this sort of antagonistic personality style of which the foremost one is narcissism. 
So we, we can get, the, the trick is to not get lost in semantics because what ends up happening is way too many survivors who are already going through too much, then try to describe their experience to someone and they have to face down this rather harsh judgment of like, well, narcissistic seems like not a very nice word. And I'm like, oh my God, this person is already so stressed out of their mind and you are going to sit here and split hairs about words. So I actually give my clients, we have them write it down in their phone. I'm like, let's write it all down. So when you meet one of these judgmental re-blaming people, you could read them the list. And if they still don't want to hear it, it might be time to sort of say, this relationship isn't healthy for me because you're not willing to hold space for the experience I just had. I see. So it's more of a process of practicing an awareness of the feelings that you're experiencing while interacting with someone who is toxic in nature, mm -hmm. demonstrating one of the 30 behaviors that you list under, under your five clusters of narcissism. Correct. And, and no one's going to ever demonstrate one. I mean, if it's one, then we've all got a problem, right? We all do some of these things. It's a combination it's, of it's, a few combination it's a critical mass if you will mm -hmm. that that really and, and rarely do these things hang by themselves they're all very interdependent and it all because at the end of the day the core of a narcissistic personality is deep deep insecurity a secure person wouldn't behave in these ways right so they're very insecure because of the insecurity there's a need to create this defensive suit of armor and that defensive suit of armor results in a tremendous antagonism to the world in general and you mentioned that as a society, we're tending to habituate to these kinds of behaviors, these patterns. Why is that? We absolutely have habituated to this. I think that at some level, we view oppositionality, hostility, anger, contentiousness as strengths. You know, we view it that somebody who, who is a bully is strong and doesn't budge and they, they have conviction. That is something that has gotten twisted and turned around and just in this history, in the history of our country. And so now we value those. I think they're definitely more masculinized qualities. And so that might even speak to sort of a patriarchal valuation. But at the end of the day, even in a woman, we value those qualities. So they're more likely to be labeled negatively with really negative terminology. So we view these things as strength. What we do devalue is empathy and compassion, writing those things off as a soccer bet. But the person who is behaving in this antagonistic way, not only people are more afraid of them, they're more likely to be self-serving, so they get advanced in their jobs, they make more money, and that way they get more power. And look at social media. In social media, which is really a playground of self-aggrandizement and attention-seeking, who's going to win in that space? A person who has more narcissistic qualities, because they're willing to invest themselves into, look at me, look at me, no, look at me, 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 me. And so that kind of focus, which is now really a major driver in our economy, has incentivized these patterns. And so while once upon a time, I do think there was probably more of a an S, an ethic in our culture of like pride goeth before a fall, which I also don't think is a great way to be. I think people should know their strengths and be able to healthfully talk about them. We have now swung over to let's just feed the loudest person in, in the mix. And I think in the last five to 10 years, the way our political spectrum acts out, the way even corporate, celebrity, athletic, it's the people who behave badly who really get the lion's share of the attention. We're drawn to it. And I think that the more people who behave badly, the more we genuinely become accustomed to it. So when somebody start, starts behaving rudely, we don't take notice of it. And that can become a real problem in terms of what people are willing to tolerate in their families, in their relationships, and in their workplaces. We have normalized these behaviors. 
yeah, you say we are experiencing an entitlement epidemic mm -hmm. and that part of it has to do with this enhancement of self-esteem and connecting the dots with social media. You describe how social media has exploited these very weaknesses of the narcissist mm -hmm. and that in fact, it's a tool that could awaken the narcissist and toxic beast within each of us. That's pretty scary. I think that what it's done is that it, what social media did was, and it was fascinating to me. I remember, cause I've been doing this work for a very long time. And so when social media first came out, I remember I was just starting to study narcissism. I was home with two small kids and, and I, so I wasn't into, I wasn't interacting with that world. I was just simply like working and trying to keep the ship afloat. And people started telling me about social media. I remember taking a look at early MySpace and um, Facebook. And I remember putting my head into my hands and saying, oh my God, we've just done the equivalent of putting heroin on the shelves of CVS. We're done. This is it. It's over. And I, I remember it so well because my daughters are now grown up and don't even live in the United States anymore. So when I tell you, there's a little baby on my lap and I was thinking this and it is it, it ended up being much worse than I think I ever or anyone else who does this work could have ever dreamed. Because once upon a time to get validation and admiration, a narcissistic person actually had to leave the house, right? Because who's going to show up to your house to get a, something in the newspaper? You had to go through newspaper editors. There was all all these barriers, if it were, as it were, to be that person who got the validation. And in that way, probably people were starting to get their validation, maybe a little bit in the workplace, maybe by getting involved in civic organizations, but it's not like it is now. So what it did was it unleashed the vulnerability in the people who had it. Yet, I still think that the majority of people are not like this. So I think those of us who are not like this sort of look with sort of disgust, curiosity, fear, confusion at how people behave in these spaces. But I think not everyone knows how to be with people who are like this. So when somebody's antagonizing you in a social media space, right, to be able to get attention on them, the intervention is so simple. Don't engage with them. And the mistake people make is that they go down the rabbit hole. And so it's, it's little pieces of education that are that small that we can say the way the way to address narcissism is to cut off the oxygen supply. Stop giving them supply. Stop giving them validation. And like a dog you don't feed, they're going to start begging at someone else's house. They're not going to come by anymore. That's helpful. What does a narcissistic or toxic person look like in the workplace? <sighs> very manipulative. They, they do something called triangulation. There's a lot of workplace gossip. There's a lot of telling person A one thing about person B, telling person B things about person A. And what that does is it centralizes the power in the person who is the sort of the gossip seeker and the moving people around. They tend to make alliances with people in power and they try to hold those alliances tight and restrict access to that person acting as a gatekeeper. They, they foment chaos. Um, they steal credit for people's ideas. They insinuate themselves into people, draw what they can out of them. And like I said, either present it as their own or recognize who's a threat because they may be better than them and figure out ways to silently, silently and quietly get rid of them. So it is a lot of behind the scenes stuff. It's a lot of Machiavellianism. It's a lot of manipulation. It's a lot of toxicity. They suck the oxygen out of meetings. They talk over people. They uh, devalue other people's contributions. They are contemptuous of anything that doesn't serve them. Um, they will throw people under the bus to get ahead. And that's what, it, that's what they look like in the workplace. And I guess if their boss or the culture and the system is set up to reward that kind of 
behavior, then as you say, it's, it's, there's a playbook for success and that behavior is rewarded. And I like how you also speak to how when we don't teach men how to be with their emotions, you know, men in particular who haven't learned how to regulate their emotions, that that can fuel this fire that you're referring to, especially in the workplace. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that this is something that where emotional regulation and emotional expression is something that's learned young. It's a really hard lesson to impart to someone when they're adults. It's a bit like teaching someone how to add or read when they're 25 years old. It's much, much more difficult. And so this is something that should have been taught when they were children, that it's appropriate to cry when you're sad. It's appropriate to talk about your feelings. If you're feeling angry, that there's appropriate ways to share strong emotion, that it's not appropriate to lash out at other people. Um, but those strong shows of, of cruel emotional expression aren't okay. But if that's what's being modeled for a boy, that's the lesson that they're learning. If the child is being, if a boy is being shamed for expressing those emotions, that's going to be a problem. And yet, even in the most well-meaning family, if their their child, their son, their boy is taught to express emotion in a healthy way, then they go out into the world. And in the world, that that expression could get mocked or silenced by a sport coach, by kids on a sporting team, by um, even by other adults in their world. We have a long way to go to teaching this in appropriate emotional regulation and expression. And I think emotional dysregulation is a real problem in our world right now. Drive on the freeway in Los Angeles, people cutting each other off and waving obscenities at each other and screaming and they're, they're in separate cars. And so if something as innocuous a behavior as driving a car could drive up such a primal rage, there's a lot of really angry people out there who never learned what to do with their feelings. And that's a core issue in narcissism, the incapacity to regulate emotion and have no problem throwing a grown-up tantrum and screaming at other people and disrupting other people's worlds. And now that the narcissistic person's tension has been reduced by throwing their tantrum, they're fine. And they're a bit surprised when everyone around them is rattled, like, oh, stop making such a big deal of it. I'm over it. Why aren't you over it? Well, everyone else was rattled by having to be witness to a 43 year old person's tantrum. So what do you do in that situation? I mean, how do you recommend someone navigate what you just described in a professional setting, I mean, especially if the culture doesn't explicitly communicate and provide the structure and mechanisms needed to scale healthy culture? I think one of the challenges people face is that when they encounter very, very difficult people in the workplace, they can feel quite flummoxed and there's restrictions on workplace conduct, behavior, communication that can make it worse. One of the biggest challenges is because the majority of people in the world are not narcissistic, the majority of people in the world actually take accountability for their behavior. And that's wonderful. But the challenge is, is if you're working with somebody who has an antagonistic, narcissistic, high conflict kind of a style, you're also going to start taking responsibility for their behavior because they're often going to be disappointed at you. Mm. So now you're blaming yourself for this other person's behavior. And what that does, what that means is that many times in workplace settings, these difficult, antagonistic, high conflict, entitled, dysregulated people kind of run roughshod for a very long time 
Because a lot of people are saying, well, maybe I wasn't clear enough. Maybe I didn't write that memo clear enough. Let me check my calendar. Maybe I did tell them the wrong time. Maybe they weren't on the email list. So everyone's kind of running around believing that the blaming that the narcissistic person is putting on them is true. That's the gaslighting, right? right? I never got the email. The meeting wasn't scheduled for that time. Nobody told me there was a meeting. Um, you put the wrong paragraph in here. Well, in fact, you put the right paragraph in. They chose not to read the right draft. You did send the email. They chose not to read it. You did send the calendar invite. They didn't put it in their calendar. So you need this accumulation of evidence. But in this whole process, the rest of the team is feeling more and more confused and destabilized. And so part of the challenge becomes, and I, I always I call this sort of the analogy of let's see how bad the tiger tears your arm off if you put it in the cage kind of thing. In every workplace, what you have to show, and human resource departments are going to hold your feet to the fire on this, labor law attorneys are going to hold your feet to the fire on this, which is your employment attorneys, you've got to show good faith attempts at communicating that you and then this is where we get into like those read receipt emails and you know things that you have to reply in order for the next thing to happen in the email chain and and on and, and really elaborate minutes and recorded meetings and all of this when i see workplaces that have all these policies in place i sort of smile sadly to myself i'm like wow these people went through it with a narcissistic person and they revamped all their policies i always joke that each additional draconian policy in a workplace is a response to a narcissistic person that almost brought the whole ship down. And so initially people want to believe in that human contract of trust that I could use a quick, you know, communication with you. You'll get what I mean, or you'll take responsibility. Oh man, I didn't put that in my calendar. I'm so sorry. It's my fault. When someone's not doing that, they've now sort of violated a collaborative social contract. And narcissistic individuals have no capacity for engaging in a collaborative social contract. They're only about themselves. So if the meeting's important to them, they're going to have it engraved on their arm and their, you know, put in a neon sign. If the meeting doesn't feel valuable to them, they're going to, they're going to claim they were never told about it, especially if they're brought to task for not going. And they don't, and a narcissistic player on a team doesn't like their mistakes, faults, flaws, call them what you are. They don't want them pointed out. It activates a lot of shame for them. And the cycle in people with these personalities is to go from shame to rage. So when that shame gets activated, there's a lot of acting out and anger at other people on the team. So what ends up happening is the entire workplace starts walking on eggshells. So the real play then is in good faith to attempt to communicate, make the communications and see if that's resulting in impact. The second thing is to not give benefit of the doubt and, and really say, we communicated. This was made very clear. You didn't. We're going to have to make note of this. HR, per, personnel manager, whoever does that. For some people, they'll feel like, oh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. We all make these mistakes. And you might have a, you know, a three strikes rule, whatever you do, but you're going to have policies in place. The lack of consequence is what often allows these workplace patterns to really, really proliferate. But that's policy stuff. At the individual level, it becomes critical. I say that there's when you're monitoring when you're managing this as the individual level. You need to think of this in two ways, practical and process. The practical stuff is documentation. The minute you start getting a sense of like, wait a minute, that was a shady maneuver. That didn't feel good. Red flags should be popping up like nobody's business, like it's Valentine's Day. And so red, 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 you're like, okay, I'm going to start documenting the heck out of everything. I'm going to keep my own very elaborate notes of meetings. 
I'm going to ask not to meet alone with this person. I am going to avoid things like um, oral communication and try to get everything in writing as much as possible. Is it exhausting? Yeah, these are exhausting relationships. You're also going to ensure that you make collaboration and, and allies in the workplace, not triangulation, not backdoor gossip, but, but really drawing together the team and working together on clear communication. But on the process side, not all this, you know, document, document, but the process side are your feelings. Many, many people have been gaslighted their whole lives. And gaslighting is the denial of the reality of another person. I never said that. I never got that email on and on and on. And so you quickly go into your inbox and I send that that's gaslighting. When that happens over time, it really leaves the person, the gaslightee, the receiver of it full of self-doubt confusion, anxiety, helplessness, hopelessness, and powerlessness. If this is something that's been happening to someone since they were a child, their parents gaslighted them, the, the experience of being gaslighted in the workplace is going to be felt more profoundly, and they're going to be more likely to fall into it again and doubt themselves. So now with each passing day, there might actually start coming into work like a quivering nerve, like, did I remember? Did I did it? To the point if people are gaslighted enough and narcissistically abused enough in the workplace, they start looking like they have symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder because they're checking and double checking and quadruple checking to the point where they're sleepless at night because they're so afraid they're going to get accused the next day of something they didn't do when they had in fact done it. You can see how that could really make a person almost go mad. And so these are the things, these are the issues to keep in mind in the workplace. The biggest challenge though, Derek, is that workplaces aren't set up to systematically address these issues. This isn't off, this doesn't always, it can and often does, but it doesn't always culminate in in your face above the line levels of harassment. It's this subtle death by a thousand cuts that actually is probably a bigger contributor to workplace stress than the big ticket harassment, title nine, get fired sort of stuff. And because this stuff falls under the radar, this whomever the disciplinary or behavioral authorities are in a workplace often don't have enough to work with. And maybe what they'll either do is move one staff member to another division or what happens even more often is the healthy person leaves. And this is how you can hit critical mass in a workplace that the healthy people start saying, I'm out. Like I can't, I don't have the money to hire an attorney. I don't want to spend the time going after this. Most workplace attorneys won't take these cases because you don't have the evidence. And so you can bleed out an organization of the healthy people really just ultimately leaving the narcissist and the narcissist enablers. And then the whole thing collapses. You had mentioned the problems with labeling and how some of these behaviors are just so deeply entrenched and often performed without awareness. I'm wondering then what you recommend are the final good faith efforts one can try. So let's, but I, what I'd love to build on, because something that you've brought up and I don't want the time to go and then us not talk about this, which is this idea of how do we avoid the us them when we're the sort of, it's sort of the dichotomy right. of there's difficult people and not difficult people, right. right? And I think it's more of, it's sticking to pattern rather than person. So what the challenge is, is that the pattern is embedded in the person. And so I'm a real, I'm a really big fan of something I call conscious disengagement, which is a, it's, 
a, and it may be, maybe the better word is compassionate disengagement, because what ends up happening is that if somebody is behaving in a way that is hostile, conflictual, egocentric, self-serving, gaslighting, whatever it may be, um, that a core issue then becomes to not personalize that other person's stuff. So to say, whatever it is they're going through, whatever their backstory is, it is not mine. And since we know in 100% of cases, people who are behaving like this are dealing with core insecurities that might be based in childhood, that might be based in their interactions with society as a whole, that it's not kind to antagonize an insecure person. So when a person's behaving badly, it's to give yourself permission to disengage. But because so few people in this world know how to set healthy boundaries or maintain healthy boundaries, we have all gotten the message, and I don't know what it is, this idea of have to forgive everyone, half everyone has to get along. Everyone doesn't have to get along. But what you can do is you can give yourself permission to say, this doesn't feel good. And so I am definitely going to very, very gracefully pull back. It's almost like if you could view it as a film, it's like somebody backing out of a door slowly but surely and getting smaller and smaller in frame. Mm -hmm. And speaking of healthy boundaries, if an organization has clear norms and values and the systems in place to operationalize them, then the responsibility falls to leadership to not enable or allow those behaviors to persist. And really ultimately in a healthy culture, the responsibility sits not just with those in leadership positions, but really anyone on the team who, if leaders are doing their job, hopefully feels psychologically safe enough to express themselves, reaffirm their boundaries, and co-create the paths that are healthiest for them and other team members. So what gets challenging here is I completely agree with you. If it's an employment setting and you as a leader, you really do have, I, I believe, a higher calling to be able to make it work, right? So you model it. You have to, but see, to me, Derek, this is why leaders have to understand narcissism because otherwise that difficult person is going to run over everybody and an ineffective leader is just going to look like a deer in the headlights watching all of this happen. So the leaders need to get this. And once the leaders get this, now the leaders have to expend more bandwidth to really ensuring that this one person isn't communicating inappropriately and running over people and all of that. The leader then has the unenviable position of potentially having to take that person aside and say, I'd like to talk with you about that meeting. I'm willing to make, make a thousand dollar bet with you right now, then that difficult person will lash out at the leader and start attempting to triangulate the team because they're so angry that the leader activated shame inside of them. So now the team is confused because where they once had respect for the leader, this difficult person is now bringing in doubt. So while we can have these aspirational ideas of what the leader needs to do about behavioral norms, the reality is it often doesn't go down this way. And I have seen many a leader leave an organization because a difficult person who was under them in the organization made it impossible to lead. Yeah. I know what it feels like to be that deer in the headlights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's challenging. And here's the thing, Derek, I think so many people, they say, well, this is defeat issue. You're saying sometimes the only answer is to leave. Sometimes it is not always sometimes. And this is why gatekeeping is so important that you really, really need to vet the people you bring in as carefully as you possibly can. And if something doesn't feel good, 
trust the instinct. Because if somebody, listen, if somebody's antagonizing you or being difficult, even before they're in the door at the level of an interview or early email correspondence, don't write that off to nervousness. Saying if they're willing to antagonize you now, they're going to double down on this in a little while. And like I said, organizations are tough because if you get critical mass of this kind of behavior, you could bring the whole organization down. Yes, that's scary. Something to look for, for sure, during the interview process. Uh, to switch gears slightly, in your book, I really appreciate how you also demonstrate how narcissism can show up in new age gurus and within other domains of the quick fix economy. You speak to how in some of these settings, core to their brand is a tendency to avoid difficult emotions, avoid difficult conversations, and in some cases to magically wish away problems, maybe with only things like joy and one's inner light, all ostensibly in service to the growth of their followers. But in fact, they potentially are accomplishing the opposite and behaving in ways that may actually reinforce the very neuroses from which they are claiming to liberate. Can you unpack that for us? So I think a couple of things on that. I want to talk about a form of narcissism that can shed some light on this. So I said there's multiple subtypes and there's a subtype of narcissism called uh, communal narcissism. It was a theoretical model founded by um, a person named Johann Gebauer, who is based at a university in Munich. And it's a really interesting telling of the tale because the way he described communal narcissism is that these are people who do the core functionality of narcissism, seeking validation, and they do it through doing ostensibly good deeds for other people. They're rescuers, they're gurus, they're proclaimed healers of the masses kind of thing. But they're doing it to get validation. It's actually not a commitment to the higher vision or purpose of, I want to alleviate human suffering or I want to rescue all the elephants in the world. It's like, rescue an elephants is a good look. I'm going to do that. These are people who will devote all their time and resource and energy to saving a village of children on the other side of the world but are really psychologically abusive of the children that are in their own home. So they do not, they, they are not able to manage their intimate spaces, but they portray an image to themselves of the grand rescuer, the humanitarian of our time, but they are very unkind people at the core of it. So part of the risk here is that number one, it, I think it, it trivializes human suffering and human growth by turning it into a five-step program and pay me a coaching fee and one, a one-year subscription. And I really do think that that devalues how mental health work works. I think that devalues how the human psyche works. And I think that commodification, not only of human suffering, but of human healing, it is really sort of very self-serving. Again, doesn't account for it. And then, and this is the challenge I've seen in hundreds actually of people I've, I've worked with and spoken with is that then there is a an invalidation a gaslighting and a dehumanization of people who aren't healing fast enough well the reason you aren't getting better is you're not doing it right you're not following my program and if you just followed my program you'd be better and so now this person who may be experiencing genuine trauma really experiencing the rigors of a difficult relationship is now being blamed by the so-called guru who is supposed to be the healer because they're not healing is making the guru look bad. Everything is in the service of the healer, the guru, the teacher, healer, whatever the heck they are to look good. It's a brand. And so, and that, that to me, that self blame is a core conflict and a core wound 
of people who have gone through difficult experiences, particularly difficult interpersonal experiences. And I think that this idea of, of elevating this sort of like, you know, it, it's, I always call it like punitive yoga, all these people who are out there doing yoga, but then they're mean about yoga. And I, I say this actually quite angrily. I was raised in a very Hindu home and yoga is actually the preparation of the body to receive worship, to do puja, you know, so as my mother did it since, you know, now over 65 years, she did it to prepare herself to do this rather sacred ritual, not to get a nice butt. And when I explained to this aging Indian woman, this is why people do yoga now, it's actually quite heartbreaking for her. She's like, this is our most sacred ritual. And I said, yeah, well, this is why they're doing it. And it hit me when I had that conversation with her 20 years ago, I'm like, oh, that's kind of narcissistic of them, isn't it? So that's the piece about this sort of new age kind of guru oriented, get better because it makes me look good. And then the quick fix piece not only invalidates the differential healing experience of a survivor, it actually also is emblematic of systemic oppressions. We forget that people don't have the same voices and the same power in society. It's much easier for a privileged person to heal than a person whose marginalized voice means they can't access help, that their attempt to make change is not going to be regarded the same way by society. And I think that think positive, be positive, and everything's going to be positive is very much a voice of the privilege. And I think it really misses the experience of people who have silenced and oppressed voices. So I, and again, that's another manifestation of narcissism. So I'm very aware of this and myself and a group of colleagues, good therapists who do work in this narcissistic abuse realm. We do a lot of what I call deprogramming work, bringing people out of these gurued spaces where they were told they were bad because they weren't healing or they didn't understand why they didn't get better in the six-week coaching program and to have to re-educate them on healing is an incredibly individual process. I've worked with some survivors of narcissistic abuse that even 10 years out still hear the echoes of their abuser. And I'm like, it's completely normal. You know, we're going to, we're going to work with that. We're going to be with that. There's nothing wrong with you, but when someone traumatizes you, it stays with you. Our, our memories and our bodies hold these. And so that piece of hurry up and heal is not good for anybody. Yeah. That's really sad. Yeah. Quick note on the, the four letter word yoga. Most of the <laughs> world slash West don't know what that word means. And Mm -hmm. uh, for those that are interested in taking a deeper dive, we have a massive library of education on, uh, what this word means. And I'll be posting the first on the podcast, the first, uh, two session or two episode, uh, session with Dr. Douglas Brooks on this, the entirety of what this word means, you know, over the last few thousand years, you're right. Getting, um, uh, a certain looking, butt uh, is, uh, far from what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's part of it. It's, it's part of, if, if one wants to engage in self-care and if, if the doorway is to get a, a, a better looking part of their body and that ultimately helps them with something else in their life, then that's potentially a good thing, but let's call it that. Then, it, and my point, my point is that if anyone is engaging in healing practices of any kind, you know, whether it's breathing, whether it's yoga, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's whatever they're doing, I think that's magnificent because I think these are all important adjuncts to therapy. What I think is not okay 
like I said, is to commodify human suffering in that way, and then take a very antagonistic stance against those who do not fit a profile, who aren't doing it right, right. or honestly, to sit in criticism of people who don't make the same choices. You know, I think this is something that comes up quite a bit. And again, it is a function of privilege and economics and social class, where there is, well, if you don't eat in this certain way, you don't eat these certain foods, and you don't live your life in this certain way. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like, that's great that that works for you, but why do you weaponize how you do things to harm others? That's the narcissistic piece that my way is the right way, your way is the wrong way. And the reason your life isn't the way you want is because you're not living like me. That is the ultimate sort of narcissistic, supercilious, dismissive kind of an approach that only serves to uplift that self-righteous person and dismiss everyone who's below them or they perceive to be below them. And that's the sort of stuff that I think does so, so much harm in this space. So is it a stretch to say that the battle since time immemorial for supremacy of one's religious ideology or one's cosmological worldview has a solid foundation in narcissism? I would argue absolutely the answer to that is yes, because the idea that my that my belief is better than yours, mm -hmm. my belief is more important than yours, my faith is stronger than yours, actually is another form of gaslighting. It's a denial of what my faith is, what my belief is. And since these are subjective states, you could absolutely say to me, I have a belief, you have a belief, you want to talk about our beliefs? That's great. But that, you know, that these hierarchical dominance oriented um, uh, structures, they really are designed to centralize power in one person. And what we do know about narcissism and frankly, psychopathy is that it's a single minded pursuit of power, pleasure and profit. And that's what a lot of those structures were. It's our belief or no belief. And that to me is not compassionate. That is and which is supposed to be the core of all religions, right, is compassion. But that idea of lording one's belief over another and judging another person person's belief as wrong versus saying, how interesting, I'd love to hear about your beliefs and understanding that that person's core beliefs, whether they're religious or spiritual or otherwise, are things that guide them. I think that's beautiful. But if you tell me I'm wrong and you're right because you have that, that's just downright ugly. There's a difference. Wow. So, so much evil in the world is caused by narcissism. So mm -hmm. much of I, I, yeah. the warring mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. due to my worldview my mm -hmm. superstitious mm -hmm. belief is somehow better than yours or has some kind of supremacy over yours. Correct. That's exactly right. It has supremacy. And then it, it may, and you know what? I think sometimes the beliefs and the religions are the red herring. I think when it comes down to brass tacks, it's, it's one person saying, I want to be the most powerful one. I'll use this religious thing. I'll use whatever I need to. I just need to be the one at the top of the heap. I need everyone to come adore me. I need everyone to worship me as the leader. And so they, sadly, they almost co-opt what is a meaningful belief structure to others like religion who actually live by it and it gives them solace and they take it and they weaponize it for no other reason to benefit them as a person. I argue that every war since the beginning of history started because of narcissism. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. We could almost say the same thing of the filibuster. Yeah, exactly. Anything where there's a an oppositional, stubborn defiance with with no empathy or regard for others 
is that. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see how many of the structures in a society, in judicial processes, in governments, are actually reliant on just sheer dominance. And anything that's reliant on sheer dominance is really about not accounting for the disempowered person's point of view. That's a narcissistic stance. It's very egoistic, and it is and, and it's how power has been held for so long in our culture. I think part of the reason our culture is being shaken to its core is that all groups are standing up and saying, really, there's no reason we can't all be on equal footing. Well, then the narcissistic people in charge are saying, oh, hell no. We have been at the top of this food chain for so long. You think you're going to roll up here? Like we were good in our sort of validation seeking and, you know, um, empire. Now you're saying you want to be a part of this game. It's, it's really about not wanting to give away. It's as though what we're doing is we're pulling the pacifiers out of the mouths of people who've had pacifiers in their mouths for a long time. Say, let's all hang out together. You don't need that pacifier. No, that's not going to work. And it's not working. And I think it's why the world is such a mess right now. Right. Because without the pacifier, they have to have the nuanced difficult conversation. Precisely. Multifaceted, multidimensional yes. mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's right. And that takes me to when you do navigate or treat someone in the therapeutic environment, you refer to how that growth can be deeply painful mm -hmm. in order to excavate the demons and really shine light on those dark places that mm -hmm. they've spent a lifetime Again, I'm using the word they uncomfortably. A lifetime. People, just people, people, people who are struggling with this have lived with, yeah. Mm -hmm. Spent a lifetime uh, letting the patterns, the complexes run on autopilot. Mm -hmm. Can we speak to that just briefly? Like, what's that like for someone who, who wants to go through that journey? So for anybody, and it doesn't matter what side of sort of the difficult relationship journey you're on, whether you're more on the receiving side or the you're more on the being the difficult person side, going and doing the deep dive into therapy and excavating is extraordinarily painful because what we're doing is we're basically upending all the, the temples and structures you thought were your life. I can't tell you how many times I've had a person sit in front of me in the early weeks of therapy and tell me about their really, really happy family. I know nobody sitting in my office had a happy family. That's how you ended up in my office or in my Zoom, I guess, these days. <laughs> and then we start doing the deep dive and we recognize that that fiction of that happy family became an extraordinarily important defense because the alternative is was shame. And coming from an unhappy family is such an activator of shame for people. And that, especially for a child, a child often senses the dysfunction in their family, and even at six or seven, will have this shameful stance when they go to play at someone else's home or something. Well, that carries into adulthood. And so the fiction of their family really sustains. My mother tells a story of when I was playing with a friend of mine around that age of six or seven, where their parents were getting divorced and somehow that, that, that friend of mine was expressing something about it. And I said, she, she says that I said to him, well, do they argue or do they fight? And he said, they fight. And my response was, oh, good. My parents only argue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for me as well, it wasn't until in therapy that I addressed and explored mm -hmm. what arguing meant in, in my childhood That's and the right. role that I assumed as, as a golden boy like what that meant for mm -hmm. me as an adult mm -hmm. and, and my own process of growing up. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to in no, interject. But I'm that. so glad you did because I think that what happens is that we are literally taking apart 
so many, maybe I came from a happy family, like, hmm, that wasn't so healthy. Or I internalized these negative messages or people who are going through divorces, the amount of shame of, I just wanted to give my kids an intact family. And now they're feeling that shame. But I said, listen, if you stayed married to this person, this family was not intact. This was, a, it's, it's a horror show for a child to grow up in the midst of two parents who have contempt for each other. I mean, you're choosing between two evils at that point. Do you divorce or do you stay with somebody? Do you, do you stay married to someone where you can't stand each other or you're being emotionally abused? What's worse for your child to see? They're both really perilous paths to walk. So people are really having to dive into the core beliefs, their core structures, their core wounds. And most people are pretty content to say, how about we put that over in a box over there so I can at least walk through the world? Because it's, it's really, again, it's not a good look to start sobbing in the grocery line at Trader Joe's been there, done that, because you've been triggered about some ingredient you just saw. And so, yeah. but you know what? I think that that's the, to really cut to the core of that can set you up for what I consider to be the most beautiful part of the human journey is if you can live in authenticity. Authenticity to me is the kryptonite to narcissism. Because when you live authentically, it's as though it's almost like when you're wearing insect repellent and the mosquito kind of goes the other way. They're like, mm. You know, this isn't working. They can sense that you are not going to be a sort, a person who's narcissistic. You're not going to be a source of supply. You're not going to play. And so you often can keep people at bay. I also argue that authentic people often have fewer people around them because there's something somewhat almost unsettling about. It's not an arrogance. It's actually sort of a serenity, but it's a serenity that doesn't need. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of self, they're self-nourished through their souls. But to get there, it's like, going through the Grand Canyon there. You, you can't fly over it. You're going to have to climb up and you're going to have to climb back down, up, climb down, climb back up in the heat. It's not pleasant. And do it over and over again. Over again. Exactly. Back and forth and back and forth. And every time something triggers something, you've got to be willing to do that work. And I have to tell you, being a therapist is it's difficult, but it's also a privilege to be in a room, to be on a Zoom call with somebody who is actually willing to commit to that work and to trust you as a therapist to be the holder of that journey. It's just really quite remarkable to watch the people who are willing to do the work and let their defenses slowly be peeled back like an onion. It's such trust in that. I mean, it really, really is. And I've seen people do absolutely miraculous things through therapy. My own therapy has been nothing short of miraculous. And I've been working on again, off again with the same person, I hate to admit it, for almost 30 years. But it that was, without that, she really became like the... Um, like the scaffold to my psyche because it wasn't going to hold up on its own. We needed to do too much work and we did it. We do it because I, as a therapist, I think you have to be in therapy. And so um, it's been an absolutely remarkable journey and I can't, and, but she pushed me and she pushed me hard and, um, and th there would not be a me without that. I second the endorsement for therapy. Yep. There's no mm -hmm. way that yeah. I would have mm -hmm. experienced the evolution that I am experiencing and will continue to experience without it. You mentioned you hate to admit it regarding the 30 mm -hmm. years. Do you want to mm -hmm. comment on that or just let that? I hate to admit. You said I've been in therapy. You said I've been ther you know therapy why? 30 years. I hate to admit yeah. it. I tell you why, because I think it is so devalued as a cultural trope that I'm some sort of mm. um, gazing neurotic. And what was interesting is that when I first went into therapy, I was a graduate student and I was really feeling anxious about numerous things. When I look back and now I understand what all those things were. And it was a, it was a really slow journey. If she went in like gangbusters in session two and say, bah, 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 like what? So I really, I was an anxious graduate student. I was at a very competitive graduate program. I felt like everyone is better than me. I felt like an idiot. I had a very stressful experience. And so I started. 
And what was fascinating is she may be the only full keeper of my history because she knew me even before I met the person I would marry and subsequently divorce. She knew me before I had kids. She knew my whole career. It's really quite a miracle to have that kind of a history keeper in your life because no one else in my life has ever been interested enough <clears throat> to manage my history that way. But I think that it, it's viewed as an indulgence and we pathologize people. But I think it's the length I've been in therapy. Like I didn't want to be viewed as sort of that sort of neurotic New Yorker on the psychoanalyst couch when there were there were entire periods. I, I actually I remember going I went going dark for about seven years with her. And then I was so embarrassed I didn't show back up. So I was ashamed for letting her down. I was ashamed for being in therapy that long. I couldn't win. And so I ended up, um, you know, contacting her and getting back in. And I remember rolling up with a baby and the whole nine yards. I mean, it was, it has, it's been essential because it was my sounding board. And because of issues in my childhood, issues of being a brown woman in the United States and the daughter of immigrants and the stresses that went with that because of some specific elements of my history, I, I needed that fortification. And that's the only way I can describe it. It was a fortification. And then it became a sounding board um, and a place of validation, which is what therapy is. It's that one safe place where someone else's neurosis isn't getting in the way. Well, I'm so glad I asked the question because hopefully us having this conversation adds to the normalizing of mm -hmm. the, the, pro so. the process. Yeah. And mm -hmm. gosh, yeah. I, I wish I had started therapy much sooner mm -hmm. than I did. I, I really, mm -hmm. high school even, or earlier, mm -hmm. college certainly, I would have saved myself and perhaps others you know, a lot of pain and, and wasted time. Um, and then again, there's a privilege component and an access component. It's Very not, it's not, so. it's not inexpensive. I'm glad you also mentioned too, that in my unprofessional experience, uh, this one sign of a good therapist is they meet you where you're at mm -hmm. and that they don't take you faster than they can sense that you can go. Correct. Last two questions. Yeah. Great. Okay. Uh, you, you quoted Herman Hesse twice in your book. Mm -hmm. Is that because you're mm -hmm. a fan or just because a fan. yeah. Yeah. Is there anything mm -hmm. you want to say about that? I'm a huge fan. I think I was partially raised on his books. That's uh, you know, the only reason my, why I my, keyed into it. My most recent encounter with Hesse was so interesting. I was in India with my parents and my parents' health has declined in recent years. So I'm glad I'd done this trip. And my parents had a goal of making a pilgrimage to certain significant Hindu temples. They did the North, they did the South. I went with them to the South and, um, you know, some needed some help and whatnot getting around. And there were these, in order to go to these temples during the holy season in India, there are these long queues, you know, long lines you have to stand in them. Um, and with no shoes, you know, because you can't wear a shoe in the temple. And, um, and I would need to, and you couldn't have a cell phone, right? And I, I wanted something to sort of center me in the space. So I brought Siddhartha with me and I would read Siddhartha, these long, long temple lines. And so for me, there is now this beautiful, like these temples are all dark, old stone. It's a, I can't, there's smells. I mean, it, and so now there's this, this sort of bringing together, I mean, for me of Hesse and being in that space. And, and then you go and you do this thing called a darshan and it's, it's a whole, it's a whole process. And, um, there are simple wisdoms in in Hesse that I actually think that in some ways made, you know, make some of the, the wisdom of some Eastern teaching maybe more accessible to people. And that's a whole different discussion on on how we, we, we sort of shunt that wisdom. 
but it, it, it's it's the simplicity of the wisdom of that that really really struck me, and I find it very useful with clients and to communicate some very very basic thoughts and and to sort of that story of Siddhartha or any telling of the Buddha or any you know again the Buddha is also an avatar of Vishnu, so you know there's all there's so there's sort of so much play there for me in terms of how I was raised, and I think the intersectionality of Hesse's writing and what my childhood teachings were was I think actually where it it was the the um the sort of sweet spot for me. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That story is powerful. I read mm -hmm. my parents gave me that for my 19th birthday and mm -hmm. I didn't understand mm -hmm. it at the time, but I, I've reread it a few times since. Yeah. Most people think it's the story of the, the Buddha, but actually he meets the Buddha at one point and has a, a fascinating yeah. conversation mm -hmm. with him, mm -hmm. which, yeah. um, what occurs isn't what one might expect, um, yeah. but eventually right. finds the river. Mm -hmm. Speaking of river, uh, when I first launched our company, there was a way to choose from one of the nonprofits that we were working with at the time. And we were uh, attempting to, to tie engagement with, uh, giving back. So the message was by giving to yourself, you give to others. Uh, I failed in manifesting that for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which was because, um, financially it wouldn't have worked out, but to my great gratitude, we are uh, launching a version of that uh, either at the end of this year or early next year, where by engaging with our platform, uh, uh, one will be help helping heal our planet. And so one question that I'm asking every guest at the end of these episodes is, you know, how is the interconnectivity between your own self-care and the care for our planet evident in your life or in what ways do you connect with our planet and how have these connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? So I have a couple of layers of answers to that. Um, is, uh, I am a sort of a very anti-consumerist person. It's, it's a real struggle for me. And, and it's, again, so many things roads come back to my study of narcissism because I think that part of the reason we consume the way we do is insecurity. If I have the right hair, if I have the right shirt, if I have the right this, I have to write that, then I have, we're told by advertisers, we would have, we'll be better, right? And my daughter made an interesting comment. I'm a deeply unfashionable person. And I actually purchase my clothes usually at secondhand or Goodwill or that kind of thing. And I, I, when I, I saw a documentary on the use of water in the fashion industry, and I was devastated, and also the way human labor was used in the um, in the um, in the, the fast fashion, I said, "Oh, I don't want to participate in this." And so, she said, "Mom, you dress so terribly, but I really admire your commitment to sustainability." And and so the the shopping at the goodwills and the secondhand stores became uh, initially it was actually a financial issue for me, and then I thought, "Oh, this is an interesting way to do it." And then now I wear clothes forever, and so to to me, it was like identifying an industry that had both not only human rights issues, but also water use issues and played on that narcissism. If I wear this designer label, then I'm so much better to not sort of fall into that and be a sloppy dresser, which really works for me. So I'm like, it was also authentic that I thought like, oh, there's so many different ways we can do this in our lives. Um, so that's one, that's one big piece of it. I also have been, my, my company is called Luna, it's for the moon, and I'm actually really, planets, stars, eclipses, moons, suns matter a lot to me, and I do believe sort of a grounding at the, the time of the setting sun, and the way I was raised again in Hinduism, if you look at the sun rising, and you say, um, 
you sort of do a, a quiet mantra for somebody who's not well, that that's, that's health. The rising sun is health, right? My middle name is actually for the sun. So I, um, I do believe that if we could unite ourselves to those rhythms, like we should know where the, you know, sort of when the moon is full and those things matter. And I think once as human beings, they did matter to us. And I think it grounds us to the rhythms beyond the daily circadian rhythm, but almost this larger circadian rhythm of the earth. The final piece I want to say about that, again, bringing it back to narcissism, is I actually think narcissism has harmed the planet. And the reason I believe that is, is that think of us as in a narcissistic relationship with the earth. And the earth is actually a rather benevolent, giving mother vessel. And we teach it, we treat it with no empathy. We treat it with tremendous entitlement and arrogance. We assume it's just going to keep giving back to us. We're very egocentric in how we deal with the earth. And I think if all of us could recognize, are we showing empathy? Are we being non-narcissistic? Are we having a reciprocal loving relationship with our planet the way we would with somebody we love and treat it in that way? I actually think that the reason we are going to harm this planet, already have harmed this planet, and um, the climate is through narcissism because we put our needs first and we showed no empathy or entitlement and we showed nothing but entitlement and arrogance to our home. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So my unfashionability is actually my large, it's a larger mission is what I tell people, but I really, I do hold that, but I really do believe we are harming our planet by um, not treating it with, with empathy and respect. I love so much how you express that. And it makes me grateful that we're asking this question. Mm-hmm. So it's guest. a really good question. It's a really good question because I think that's what's happening. And it's, um, it's, it's really, it's so unsettling to me and then, yeah. and how we, we do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see it in so much of the world, especially the developing world where, you know, it's real. My heart is very much as in India and I see it happen there and it, it's devastating because I actually think when we look at indigenous practices in any culture, the reverence for the land is so high and it was always part of that. And when that, so those practices of being connected to this live, we, the, the planet was once viewed as a living relationship we had. We related to it like a human relationship. We stopped doing it. And that was, that's a real problem. I agree. Hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. This conversation was very helpful and inspiring. Thank Great. you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Derek Mills.